0: Hello and welcome to the Allen & Overy podcast. My name is Rose Hall and I head up business development for our technology group. Joining me today is Tina Kamelit, an associate in our IP team in Brussels, and also Nigel Parker, a London-based partner focused on IP, tech, and data transactions as well as advisory work. The focus of this podcast is collaborations, and specifically we're going to talk about the IP aspects of collaborations with tech companies. So Tina and Nigel, we've been doing a lot of work on collaborations, strategic alliances and joint ventures here at Allen & Overy in the last 12 months. Is there a link between the pandemic and the economic slowdown that's been associated with that and companies entering into transactions like these or are there other factors at play? Nigel, do you want to take that one first?
1: Sure. So I think the answer has to be yes and yes, really. There is a link, but it's obviously much more complicated than that. Joint ventures and collaborations are a popular means of collaborating and for businesses undertaking new activities, really regardless of the wider economic climate. But certainly in times which are tougher, where perhaps capital is constrained, possibly when businesses are under greater pressure, collaborating, entering into joint ventures can be a popular way of doing business because it helps reduce possibly investments. It enables businesses to achieve synergies and so on. So it certainly can be attractive in a downturn. I think if you look at statistics over the years, looking back at the downturns after the dot-com crash or after the financial crisis back in 08, 09, we did see an increase in the number of joint ventures and collaborations that businesses were entering into. But really look at the recent examples of the development of COVID-19 vaccines. Those have mostly involved collaborations between different companies, Pfizer and BioNTech, GSK and Snoffy and CureVac, AstraZeneca and Oxford University. Those collaborations have not been driven at all by the downturn. Obviously, the downturn we've seen has also been a consequence of COVID-19. But what's driving those collaborations actually is about innovation. It's about speed of innovation and about finding the best means of bringing these products to market as fast as possible. And it's a really good example of how collaborating can yield those results.
0: So it's clear that collaborations go hand in hand with innovation or or can stimulate innovation. But Tina, turning to you, what are other advantages to collaborations? Thanks, Rose. So there are several reasons, of
2: course, why you should be collaborating these days. I'm going to list five key reasons that we see as, as the most important ones, So first of all, reducing risk, basically making sure that you enable a sort of a help with financial commitment. For example, investment in biotech companies these days can be incredibly expensive. So making sure that you reduce risk by collaborating is first and foremost a key reason why you should do that. Another reason we often see is rationalizing and sharing costs in order to remain competitive. We also see that collaboration can actually be a first step towards acquisitions or alternatively, if you have a counterparty which didn't want to sell, or buy your business, this would actually be a way to already get into the market and, and get there together. And a fourth reason then would be sharing expertise, making sure that you can learn skills from a partner by collaborating together, but also you can accelerate basically entry into the market by working together as collaborating partners. And then finally, I would say that there are some more intangible advantages to collaborations, like for example, reputational benefits. Imagine you're collaborating with a market leader that's something that could actually really pay off and could be a key reason
0: why you should be collaborating these days. So it's clear that there are lots of benefits to collaborations but coming back to Nigel maybe you could tell us a bit more about how you would structure a collaboration.
1: Sure so I guess just in terms of terminology a collaboration when we use that term what we're typically referring to is a specific form of cooperation between two companies two or more companies even that's affected by way of contracts essentially an agreement between the collaborators to carry out particular activities in that agreement they will set out each of their responsibilities what each of them will contribute to that collaboration they'll divide up responsibilities for doing different things there'll be an agreement about the economics and so on of the collaboration collaboration might be purely to carry out R&D, to develop a product or a service, or it might be full function in the sense that one or both of the parties might ultimately be taking a product or a service to market under that collaboration agreement. Another term we use is joint venture. And When we talk about a joint venture, we typically mean something different. What we mean there is cooperation between two or more companies that's carried on through a separate legal entity, through usually a company in which each of the cooperating companies will be shareholders and through which they will carry out their sort of joint activities. Now, both of those terms are used somewhat loosely. So sometimes you might hear a collaboration referred to as a joint venture. Sometimes you might hear of a joint venture referred to as a collaboration. They're not sort of strict legal terms. That's what people usually mean when they use those two different terms. With an equity joint venture, they're, again, sort of very different varieties of that you could have an equity joint venture where you've got two partners that have equal shares you could have other joint ventures where there's multiple parties possibly where you bring in minority investors as well to raise additional capital and also to be involved there's really endless different forms that these arrangements can take from a legal perspective and the issues that each of these give rise to and how you document them and so on they are different across these different forms of arrangements.
0: So let's imagine we have an industry incumbent like a big pharma company or a bank as one of the parties, and we have a tech company across the table as the other party. What sort of perspectives are each likely to bring to the deal? Well, This is generalizing it, of course, but you might
2: expect a different dynamic between the different parties. So tech company, and especially if we are talking about a smaller, more niche type of provider, we expect to be more agile. They might also be willing to be more iterative, and they may also be more flexible about the sort of processes and governance that they might need on a tech project. And they might even be inexperienced at contracting. While an industry incumbent is likely to be more structured and might have much more established governance for the project and this will include also having a more organized structure between that an industry incumbent needs to take into account. So in order to make your collaboration successful it won't help to just weigh in and impose your culture on the other party but you'll really both sides really need to give a bit and, and really to make the collaboration a success it will be important to find this right balance in terms of the type of culture and the st- organizational structures in the different companies to really make this collaboration a success
1: that's right you know i think it's worth remembering of course though that the technology company It's not always the smaller party in the relationship between tech company and industry incumbent. Of course, we've got the big technology players, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the larger technology companies that are often be bigger than the industry incumbent that they're collaborating with. And those big tech companies obviously have their own features. They will often have quite significant resources, quite significant negotiation leverage like the industry incumbent, possibly much more sophisticated policies, controls, a clear IP strategy, a big team of patent attorneys, and so on. They're probably going to have their own very clear objectives, possibly entrenched positions across particular issues that are important to them. And so the way you approach the negotiations with big tech versus perhaps a a niche technology or a growth technology player are going to be quite different. With big technology, the interesting thing we see is that often they will know their technology really well and they'll know the markets that they operate within really well. But often the technology company in collaborating with the industry incumbent, they are themselves learning that new industry and they may not have the same levels of sophistication on the nuances and the things that are specific to that industry that the industry incumbent has and Take financial services, for an example. The technology company will be learning and will be clearly much less sophisticated than the financial services partner they collaborate with in areas like financial services regulation. Thinking about how the companies can come together and leverage their respective strengths is is really what it's all about.
0: And what about a tech startup? What are their characteristics?
1: So a tech startup, they'll typically have more limited financial substance less mature compliance frameworks, smaller teams, smaller IP departments, fewer policies, fewer systems and controls. Probably there will be a greater key person risk with the smaller companies. There may be some key individuals that are really critical to the success and the functioning of the smaller tech player. But interestingly, you know, those companies, because they can be high growth companies that, you know, things can change quite quickly and they can be often scaling up very fast. And so that can certainly change over the life of the collaboration. They might be a smaller company earlier on, but they might be actually quite a significant player once the collaboration or the JV has been running for a few years. So I think the key thing to bear in mind is really just have to approach every collaboration and joint venture afresh and really think about who the different parties are and what their capabilities are, what their strengths, weaknesses are, what their objectives are. There's no one size fits all, really. You need to look at each deal individually.
0: So clearly both of you identify IP as one of the top concerns for executives considering collaboration. So maybe at this point, we'll drill down a bit more into what you think the top IP risks are in collaborations. Tina, what's your first pick? I really think that a
2: key thing that you need to have as a collaborator is is making sure that your deal documentation addresses IP across what we call the full lifecycle of your collaboration. So that really means that you need to have IP incorporated in every aspect of collaboration. And a key risk and something that we often see in practice is that that's not something that has been taken care of for every aspect of the collaboration. So you really need to map out for every different stage of your collaboration, where IP comes in and what that means for your collaboration, who will own IP, whether IP will be licensed, what about future IP rights, background IP rights, and all that are really things that need to be considered upfront when starting the collaboration. That's also the reason why a lot of joint ventures are called to be exasperating just because it takes so long to really form a joint venture and really consider the whole process much longer than traditional M&A transaction would take. And while it's for certain things evident to consider at the beginning of your collaboration, there's a few topics that are a little bit less easy to tackle when initiating the collaboration. And I'll just name two. One is IP that still needs to be created during the collaboration, so not what we call background IP, but IP that will be created by one or two of the collaborating partners. That's something where it's not always easy to already value the IP rights on that and see, for example, which party will be an owner of that, which party will ensure enforcement, whether there will be any licensing deals. So this is really something to take into account and to, if you cannot predict in the beginning how this process will go and, and how your future IP will be valued, to really set up a structure and some governance as to when and how this IP can be valued. And the second thing, and that's probably commercially the most difficult to discuss, is termination and exit. But legally speaking, one of the most important issues I would say to tackle when it comes to maintaining and and keeping IP risks to an absolute minimum, you have to make sure any exits in collaborations are inevitable. So any exits and planning for exits is really important. Making sure that you know which party will maintain control of IP rights after the collaboration ends. So these are two things I would consider as essential to tackle in the beginning of your collaboration.
1: Another one I would call out, I think a top concern of companies entering into JVs is protecting confidential information by its nature in order to put together a collaboration to test whether there is a business case for it and certainly to ultimately reach an agreement and actually do a deal. Companies have to share quite a lot of information. Financial information, technical information, they need to do that to work out whether the synergies that they think may exist, exist. They need to do that in order to each do due diligence, effectively, to assess and verify that the other party is bringing to the collaboration or the joint venture what they say they're going to bring to it. And so it's necessary to share confidential information often can be necessary to share it at an early stage before it's clear that there is a deal to be done. So it requires a good degree of trust to some extent of a business in the partner that they are in discussions with. But then from a legal perspective, there are obviously various other things that a business can do to protect itself. And so they will want to put in place NDAs. They'll want to think about the process that is put in place around controlling disclosure of confidential information. They might want to restrict disclosure of information to particular clean teams of individuals who will hold the information within a smaller group within the recipient organization. There might also be some comfort to be taken from a wider deal between the parties in negotiations, some form of non-compete, some commitments of that nature. Because ultimately, the business that's disclosing confidential information wants to know that it's not going to be used against it, that it's not going to be used to compete with it, etc., etc., if the collaboration or joint venture ultimately doesn't go ahead.
0: So Nigel mentioned due diligence there. And Tina, I wonder, do you recommend that your client does IP due diligence before entering into a collaboration? Yes, absolutely.
2: I think if a tech company is contributing any background IP of any value, an appropriate due diligence should definitely be considered. So you'd need to review whether any IP is fully owned by the other party, whether there's any agreements as to licensing in or whether licensing out is an option. You should look at potential future infringements of IP rights of your counterparty, but also past infringement whether there have been any IP infringements, and basically really just look for any other encumbrances and other conflicting rights, which really showcase how strong the protection of this background IP actually is, because that will eventually determine the value of the IP that will be contributed, which is an important aspect, of course, of your collaboration. But, but, and I really wanted to stress that, you should know that you'll find quite a lot of issues when you're investing in or collaborating with a small tech player. And that's normal. So you need to really be realistic about these issues when you report on all these risks in such a due diligence. And rather than making your counterparty, the small tech company, an, an opponent, I would really recommend to turn them into an ally and they will usually be happy to use this collaboration to get certain things internally fixed for which they might not have had the time yet. But remember, for a small tech company, they have built what they could within the certain environment and and the restrictions they had at that time. And so rather than them being too critical about the issues that you find, try
0: to work together towards a solution on minimizing risks. That makes sense. I just wanted to pick something up. You talked about background IP and you've talked about foreground IP. It might be useful just to explain exactly what you mean by those terms. Sure. So background IP, background
2: intellectual property is basically any IP rights that have been created, invested, ordered or developed by any of the collaborating partners before the collaboration has started. So that's really the IP rights that you will decide whether or not you'll contribute that to the collaboration when it is beginning. While foreground IP is anything future looking, any IP rights that will be developed or created along the line, down the road when your collaboration has been initiated. And that's something that needs to be discussed of course, which party will create what if there is a joint venture, which party will be the owner of such foreground IP. But that's true indeed.
0: That's a crucial distinction between background and foreground IP. That's helpful. So presumably the terms of contribution of background IP are going to be pretty important to the deal. Nigel, do you want to pick that one up?
1: Sure. Look, it will depend on what the collaboration and the joint venture is all about. But if one of the partners, one of the companies involved in the collaboration is contributing its intellectual property. That's one of the things that it's bringing to the party and that the JV collaboration is going to rely upon to function absolutely as the non-contributing shareholder or the other collaborator. You want to make sure that that IP is contributed on terms that are going to be sufficient to enable the parties to carry out that joint activity. You don't want to have to be going back and renegotiating those terms later on in order to enable the collaboration, the JV, to continue to function and to flourish. So really, those contributions of intellectual property need to be approached like any arm's length negotiation. And as the other partner, you need to act as licensee effectively and make sure those terms are appropriate. Areas of sensitivity might be around, for example, the scope and field of use to any background IP license. The party contributing its IP, let's say it's a technology company collaborating with an industry incumbent, let's say in financial services. The technology company might be quite keen to limit the scope of the license to the particular activities that they're contemplating carrying out with the financial services partner i mean that's a natural thing for them want to do limit the scope of the license to those particular activities that are going to be set out in the business plan of the parties for that joint arrangement but of course any arrangement like this will evolve whatever's planned from the outset well it's sure to evolve and look different six months later and so the tension in negotiations there will be one party will want to quite tightly limit the scope of the rights granted. So that it retains them and can grant licenses to them, to other parties outside the scope of that. Whereas the other party, the party receiving the license wants to have the flexibility to evolve, to continue to operate under the license without having to go back and renegotiate. And really all those usual issues that come up in a negotiation between licensor and licensee that need to be worked through. Just briefly to expand on Tina's definition of background IP, one of the other considerations in the license will be how to deal with future background IP. So that would be IP that's perhaps acquired by or developed by one of the collaborating parties, but outside the scope of the collaboration or joint venture. So that IP, the question is, Is that automatically thrown into the bucket of IP that's licensed under the license agreement where the existing background IP is contributed? Or is that subject to further negotiation? Clearly, if you're the party on the receiving end of the license, you want this new background IP that might be acquired to be thrown in because ultimately that will benefit both parties.
0: So that's really clear when it comes to background rights. But what about foreground rights?
1: So foreground rights, these are the rights that, as Tina said, arise through the collaboration between the parties. And this is a one where actually there is quite a difference between how you deal with this on a joint venture and how you deal with it in a collaboration scenario. In a joint venture, let's say that the innovation, the, the new IP is created by employees that sit within a joint venture entity. That IP is going to, by default, be owned by the joint venture company. However, in a collaboration scenario where you've got employees from two different companies getting together and innovating, possibly carrying out different steps in a process, there's a much greater likelihood that what will happen is that the parties will, as a matter of law, end up jointly owning the IP that's created, And so one of the things you need to think about in that scenario and to deal with in your agreements is how you allocate the ownership of that foreground IP between the parties, who has what rights, who owns it, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, to do any of those things, and also in the joint venture scenario, you have to identify the IP that's being created in the first place. And so there'll be a need to put in place some sort of governance around that within the JV or the collaboration individuals being, first of all, trained appropriately to recognize activities they may be conducting that may give rise to IP, and then to have appropriate supervision and support so that if something valuable is being created, that the appropriate measures can be taken to protect that. And that could be a variety of things. If that valuable innovation is one that might be protected best simply as confidential information, it might be putting controls in place to make sure that whatever's been created remains confidential a trade secret if it's something innovative that might be capable of protection through a patent support to enable patent filing to be made and the claims drafted and so on so that that form of protection can be Sort So there needs to be sort of governance processes in place and individuals assigned sort of responsibility for supporting that. And again, exactly what that looks like will really depend on exactly what the nature of the collaboration is. A collaboration between two companies in pharmaceuticals can look very different to how that would operate in an automotive tech collaboration.
0: Thanks, Nigel. So perhaps we'll leave IP for a moment and think about some of the other risks that you might encounter in collaboration. Tina, what comes to mind for you? So antitrust issues can actually be a big risk and collaborations can in fact
2: open the door to anti-competitive behavior by collaborating partners. So basically by collaborating, you could potentially engage in anti-competitive behavior, which Obviously, really is to the detriment of society and consumers at large. So there's two ways in which we see this risk of anti-competitive behavior. For example, inside a collaboration, inside an alliance, companies could continue to charge higher prices for older products. And that would really disincentivize these companies to really start working on newer products and bring such products to the market, which obviously benefits consumers. And then outside the collaboration, even companies that are not a partner to the collaboration, to the alliance, While such collaborations could actually have a lot of market power, companies might be unwilling to really step forward with better alternatives and other products that could compete with the products that are currently marketed by the collaboration. So while there's a lot of advantages to collaborations, you should really be mindful also of potential
0: antitrust issues with and outside your collaboration. And Nigel, what about you? Any other traps for the unwary?
1: Another topic perhaps we haven't touched upon is brands. Again, exactly how this is relevant to collaborations will vary depending on the nature of the collaboration. But in any collaboration, regardless of what its activities might be, you've got two different organizations coming together to do something together. And there may be reputational or other brand-related risks arise from that you become tied to the other party in some sense and so if you're going to do that obviously you want to be comfortable with the partner that you're working with from that perspective because obviously it can give rise to to that damage possibly to a, a well established brand as a result in some joint ventures and collaborations where it will itself carry on business, it will offer a service, offer products and so on to customers. The joint venture collaboration itself may operate under its own brand. That brand might be one that's lent to it by one of the partners, or it might be one that incorporates the brands of both partners, or it might be a new brand that's established specifically for, for the JV collaboration itself. Obviously, if there are brands being contributed in Again, you need a license and the license terms need to be negotiated on an arm's length basis, much the same as any license to deal with other contributions of background IP. If there's a new brand, obviously a process needs to be gone through to clear that brand, to undertake clearance searches, to make sure that it's not going to get in the way of existing rights, to make sure that filings are done and it's properly protected across the markets across which the collaboration or the JV will operate in. So just often sort of not perhaps a focus, but for some joint ventures, some collaborations, the brands can actually be incredibly valuable and so not to be forgotten.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tina and Nigel. We've covered a lot of ground. And I think I'll take us back to where we started, which is to say that collaborations can be a catalyst to innovation in the business, or they can drive growth in the business. I think we've also heard that in spite of having competitive risks, they can also help businesses cope with rising competition. And perhaps we can also say that they can help businesses cope with black swan events. So there seems to be very little doubt that our clients will be looking into to enter into more of these arrangements in the future. So I'm really hopeful that our discussion today gives future joint venture partners some very helpful points to consider. Thank you again.